Amen. So like Brian said, if you weren't here last week when we mentioned that we're doing it, we've been preaching through the book of Romans. We're taking a break for the season of Lent, um, and we will be resuming the Roman series after Easter. And, um, but in the meantime, we are spending some time looking at what I called the last words of Jesus. This text actually is kind of a weird one because Jesus doesn't talk that much in it, but this and then a series of texts that follow that are taken from parables and sermons that he gives um, give us some insight into the final week of his life. But before we dig into it, let's pray. God and Father, just pray as we come now to your word that you might, through your spirit, apply it to our hearts, speak to us through it, challenge and convict us of our sin as all of us come to it as sinners. And be with me and watch over me as I preach it as a sinner as well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's this moment that you see sometimes in like stories or movies that I always love and I think a lot of people love. Um, The moment when like the hero is revealed. Do you know what I'm talking about? When like Clark Kent rips open his shirt, right? And you've got the, the S underneath of it. Or when like... Like Aragorn jumps out on Weathertop and, you know, has the torch or, you know, when, when the gladiator pulls his mask back and he's like, I am Maximus Deserus Aurelius, servant of the true emperor. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a very good Russell Crowe, but, um, but, but I love all those moments, right? Because they're kind of electric. Because on the one hand, like the situation hasn't changed, the same things are still going on, but suddenly we see it through new eyes. We're like, oh yeah, you know, this is like something's different here. And the characters around see it through new eyes, right? It's not like the journalist Clark Kent who's here, but it's Superman and that changes how they view the situation. And I was thinking about those moments as I thought about this text and the ones that follow it in the Gospels. One of the interesting things in the Gospels, one of the things that I think sometimes people are puzzled by, is that Jesus spends a lot of time kind of obfuscating about who he is um, in them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but he kind of plays his cards close to the chest. He tells cryptic parables and answers questions with other questions and hints at his authority and divinity and mission, but he doesn't just kind of come out and say it, right? And there's actually a good reason for that. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if Jesus had shown up in Jerusalem day one and openly declared his authority and said he was the Messiah and the Son of God, they probably would have crucified him then. Uh, And, um, you know, if he comes with this ministry and proclamation of power, they would have immediately done what they end up doing here. And so he plays this careful game. Nobody that Jesus encounters, right, in the Gospels really seems to have much question of who he's claiming to be, but all of it is tempered by this need to not get murdered yet. (laughs) And this, these two stories, and then what follows in the Gospels is the point where that really starts to change. In his last week, Jesus starts to kind of lay those cards out on the table to speak in a way that is kind of open and direct about who he is, to more directly confront and challenge the religious leaders of Israel, to in many ways kind of like proclaim um, his, his power and his authority in a way that he hasn't before. And sure enough, he ends up getting killed for it, right? He wasn't, it, it wasn't wrong to reflect that that would have been the reality earlier in the ministry because it takes a week for the people that Jesus challenges to then crucify him for it. But... Um, But now, right, it's according to his timing and as the climax of his ministry. In scripture, that actually just reflects this this deeper reality that there's really two layers always when we talk about Jesus' crucifixion. There's two layers. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you ask why did Jesus die, right? On one level, it was because God willed it. It was part of his plan of salvation and innocent sacrifice, right? God himself sacrificing himself to atone for our sins and break this power of sin and cover the guilt of sin and end the reign of Satan. And that's one of the levels. And then on the other level, there's also, he's crucified because of human actions, right? The people who conspired to have Jesus killed don't do it because they want to be saved from their sins, right? They do it because he's challenging certain things about the systems that they've put in place in the world and the way that they're living their lives. He's calling them to repentance and they don't like it. Scripture itself actually acknowledges those two levels of the crucifixion. In Acts 2, for example, Peter summarizes it like this. He says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So God's at work doing something in the crucifixion. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So you were also doing something. And I point that out at the start of this series because I think we can kind of miss important things about Jesus if we miss either of those levels. 
So if you're only focused on kind of the historical situations around the crucifixion, right? If you're only viewing it as sort of, um, you know, of this human thing and not thinking about what God is accomplishing through it, if it's just this sort of like parable about human injustice and Jesus is just a tragic martyr, then you miss what God is doing in it. You miss its significance for us in terms of God's work of salvation for us and atoning for our sins and things like that. But at the same time, we can also miss part of the point if we focus only on the cosmic level, right? God is accomplishing our salvation in the cross, but Jesus is also being crucified for, for reasons, right? Because there are wicked things in this world that he's challenging, um, and that those wicked systems in the world turn against him and ultimately seek to crush him. And we need that layer because if we miss it, we might miss the challenge that Jesus means for us as well, right? Because that kind of sin that led people to crucify Jesus still exists, and we can still be guilty of it, and we don't want to be the people who would crucify Jesus if he showed up today, right? Which is one of the reasons that I think that we need to pay attention to these last chapters of Matthew, because in them we see Jesus like pull back that mask, right? Rip open his shirt and declare who he is, and we see how that challenges the world around him, challenges it enough for it to ultimately kill him. And that challenge starts in these verses. In the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, Jesus starts the ball rolling that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And so I'd like us to just walk through each of those stories and ask a particular question, which is, why was this so challenging to the people around Jesus? Why was this so challenging to them? And so then, how is it challenging to us? So let's start kind of walking through the stories, all right? First, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. He's kind of publicly, finally coming to the temple and to the capital of Israel. And and he's coming for the feast of Passover, and everybody around him, the disciples and the religious leaders and the crowds, they all understand that this is kind of a big deal, that there's something climactic kind of going on. And Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, right? We're, we're, we're flying through the story at this first level, because if you've ever been around the church in this t- season of Easter and Lent, you're familiar with this story, right? He comes in on a donkey, and the crowds are following him and in front of him, and they're laying down their cloaks and waving palm branches and singing, Hosanna! And Hosanna is, the Hebrew, is this Hebrew word that basically means like, save us or save us now. They're proclaiming that Jesus is this prophet of God. And that, in a nutshell, is the story, right? And it's a familiar story, but kind of like any nutshell, right? You've got to crack it open and think a little bit about what's kind of deeper inside if you're going to appreciate what it's good for. So here's the question that is always at the back of my mind when I read this story and the stories that follow it, right? So there are crowds of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem and declaring him a prophet, declaring him the Messiah, right? The King of Israel. When in verse 9 they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're calling Jesus this King in the line of David that's supposed to come and rule over his people and deliver them, right? This is who Israel has been waiting for. And then a week later, crowds demand Jesus' crucifixion. People love to argue about, like, well, maybe it's a different set of people in the crowds. But, but even if that's a little bit true, what we have to acknowledge is that, like, Jesus rides in on this wave of popularity, and that popularity evaporates in the course of one week, so much so that people are able to kill him. So what happened, right? This is where we need to pay a little bit closer attention to this story. So first... Look at what the crowds are doing, all right? They're laying down cloaks and singing praises and waving palm branches, and that seems really weird to us, doesn't it? But that isn't weird in Jesus' day. This is one of those things where you need just a little bit of history to understand what's going on, all right? So about 150 years before Jesus, Israel had been under the control of the Greek Empire, and the temple had been defaced, and they were oppressed, and this guy named Judas Maccabees came and slaughtered the oppressors and overthrew the Greek control of Jerusalem and rededicated the temple, right? He's this political hero for Israel, and this conquering kind of like guy that comes in. And here, for example, is how 2 Maccabees 10 then records how the people respond after Judas Maccabees does that. He says, that they go around carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, parading around, singing grateful praise to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. All right? 
That is the first time you ever see that behavior in history. And that book, so 2 Maccabees is not a part of the Bible, but it was this book that was hugely popular and widely read in Jesus' day. And Israel and Jerusalem is again under oppression in Jesus' day, right? The Roman Empire controls it. And so when the crowds who love this kind of revolutionary literature, they, you know, Jesus comes in and they start waving palm branches and, you know, singing praise to God and shouting, save us. They're probably looking for Jesus to do something similar, right? To ride in like Judas Maccabees and, you know, to start chopping off Roman heads, right? Or to put it another way, what are they asking Jesus to save them from? It's pretty apparent, as you read what comes after this text, that they're not praying that Jesus would save them from their guilt and their sin. What they're hoping for is worldly salvation, right? In this case, political salvation salvation. They want Jesus to come and clean house and take up the sword and lead the army and drive out the Romans and call down fire from heaven and make the streets run with blood. That is what the kind of salvation that they are looking for in Jesus, to set up a political kingdom in national Israel based on worldly power. And Jesus challenges that. Again, just like we can miss that kind of like sense of what the crowds are chanting for, I think we can miss that challenge. But So verse 10 is kind of interesting to me in this text. All right, Jesus enters Jerusalem, it says, and the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who is this? Which is interesting because it's not like the people didn't know who Jesus was in the sense of they hadn't heard about him, right? So Jesus, by this point in his ministry, is incredibly famous. The religious leaders for the last like year or two have been coming out from Jerusalem to argue with him, and huge crowds are following him. And he just rose a dead guy not too far from Jerusalem and has been healing the sick and stuff. They know on that level who Jesus is. And neither is it a question about what the crowds are claiming. Everybody in this world has been waiting for a Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. Everybody knows the stories of Judas Maccabees and wants that to happen again. But somehow, they're still confused by Jesus, right? They're still wondering who this guy is. And the reason rests in that donkey and in the scripture from Zechariah that Matthew connects to it, all right? So these crowds are calling for Jesus to ride in and clean house, and Jesus rides in on a donkey, not a war horse. And by that act... The Gospels all make clear he's referencing this, this prophecy from Zechariah 9. Matthew quotes the beginning of it. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which already doesn't seem to fit, right? Your king comes gentle, which is not really what they're looking for. And if you keep reading Zechariah 9, it becomes even more apparent. I will take away the chariots... From Ephraim, right? Ephraim is the tribe is the tribe of Israel. I I will take the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, right? Peace, not war and conquest. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That he's in some sense a king for all the nations, not just Israel. Jesus is coming to establish God's kingdom. But here in his entry into Jerusalem, and repeatedly in the coming weeks when people try to ask him similar things, he makes clear that that kingdom is a kingdom of peace for the nations and judgment for Israel. Peace for the nations and judgment for Israel, not the other way around, which is what the crowds are looking for. Or to put it another way, to boil all that down, part of why they crucify Jesus is that he is challenging their worldly hope. Jesus is challenging their worldly hope. Here's what I mean by worldly hope. There are lots of good things in the world that we can want, right? We can want health and comfort and prosperity and for people to like us and think we're great and comfortable retirements and nice houses and you could just keep listing this stuff, right? I just got a new smartphone because I, you know, and I was really excited about that. And people in Jesus' day... Um, they wanted things in this world too, right? They wanted deliverance from Roman oppression and religious freedom and the end of tyranny and for there not to be soldiers on the street corner who could execute them for no apparent reason. And the thing is, all of those desires in our world and in Jesus' world, those are, those are not bad desires, right? It's not a bad thing to, to want a new smartphone, I hope. It's, it's not a bad thing to want religious freedom and for Roman soldiers not to execute you, Right? But the problem is when we elevate those desires so that they become equal with or superior to our desire for God. That's when the problem comes. It's like, 
It's like my kids love me, right? And I mean, they do, but they love sweets too. And there are times that those two desires come into conflict, right? When, um, when, you know, when I tell them, no, it's 20 minutes until supper, you can't have candy, for example, right? And the thing is that it's not bad that they like sweets, but you suddenly realize that those desires are kind of out of whack. The point at which, you know, they throw a fit and tell me they hate me, and I send them to the room for talking to me that way, and they storm off, and, you know, right? Like, it's clear that in that moment, they're actually putting their desire for sweets ahead of their love for me. And we can do that same thing with our worldly hopes. Jesus spends a good bit of time in his ministry seeking to challenge the disordered loves of the people around him. He regularly points out that their love for God is coming in conflict with their love for some other thing, the praise of other people, money, whatever, and that they've elevated that other thing until it's equal with God or even superior to God. And they're willing to sacrifice then worship and faithfulness in God for that other thing. It's the problem with Israel's political hope in the Messiah, right? It isn't wrong for them to want political deliverance. But what's wrong is that if you, if, you, if you spend some time in the Old Testament, like God has a purpose for his people in the world, and that purpose is that they are meant to be a light to the nations, that they have this mission from God to be evangelists and missionaries, to call all of the nations to trust in, in and worship God, and they have abandoned that mission in the name of political revolution. They um, don't want people around them to be saved and to come meet the Lord. What they want is for God to slaughter all of them. <laughs> and, and so when Jesus comes proclaiming this mission of God and rides in declaring peace for the nations, they kill him because they don't want peace and God as much as they want war and worldly vindication. And we can fall into those same worldly traps, Right? There's an obvious challenge there. Politically, our loves can become disordered and we can place politics next to God or even superior to him in how we think about the world. And I mean we can. Everybody can, right? This is not like every, everybody in any party or any like non-party kind of thing can do that. During the election, I, um, I heard a prominent pastor... Um, I'm not giving any details about what side he's on or any of this, but I heard a prominent pastor go off about how we shouldn't criticize um, candidates that, that, that we're supporting because, um, because we might lose a seat at the table, for example. Not, not because it was unbiblical, not for some biblical justification, but he simply said, like, you shouldn't, like, ever cha- you shouldn't challenge the people that you like politically because then they might be disinclined to kind of give you influence, right? And that kind of thing freaks me out politically because that's doing the kind of thing that people in Jesus' world are doing, right? It's, it's a willingness to say, like, well, you know, yeah, God and his truth, but... I mean, if that costs us a seat at the table, I mean, <laughs> that's problematic. But, but I don't think that politics are the main place that that challenges us. It's not just political hope that can, you know, that can cause us to forsake God, but any worldly hope. So here's just one example. There is this very, very widespread idea in our world and in America that Christianity supposed to make us wealthy and successful and healthy and comfortable, right? It's everywhere. There are preachers who really obviously peddle it. So like, and this guy seriously has the best name ever for a prosperity teacher, right? But Creeflo Dollar, um, who says, and I quote, Righteousness, wealth, and riches go hand in hand. You have every right to possess material wealth. Clothes, jewelry, houses, cars, and money in abundance. It is that wealth that not only meets your needs, but spreads the gospel message and meets the needs of others. The Bible says that wealth is stored up for the righteous, but it will remain stored up until you claim it. So claim it now. You possess the ability to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you. Right? So that is confusing, worldly hope with God. I hope that we see it when it's that obvious. Right? But it's not always spouted by people with the last name of Dollar, who who put it quite so bluntly. But there are some very popular people who say things like, God wants us to prosper financially and to have plenty of money and to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. Joel Osteen, or who would want to get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broken, ugly, and you just have to muddle through until you get to heaven? I believe God wants to give us nice things. 
I mean, Joyce Meyer. <laughs> and I know that some of us like some of the things that some of those people say. And I'm not saying that everything they've said is wrong because of that. But I say that because that idea is everywhere in our world, right? The idea that you can love God and money and never have the two come into conflict. And part of me... <laughs> Part of me wants to just go off about how ridiculous all of that is, right? The idea that, that, I'm, that, that, that I'm fat and rich here in America, and that's a sign of God's favor for my faithfulness, right? While, while these, these people in China and Iran who are, like, you know, hiding underground and getting executed and imprisoned just because they want to get a Bible, clearly, like, they must not show the, the deep faithfulness and love that I do, right? Like, that's preposterous, right? I mean, that, that being miserable and poor and broke and ugly sounds an awful lot like Jesus, who was homeless, right? And, and, and suffered, and according to Isaiah, wasn't much to look at. Um, I want to go off about that, kind of, but here's the thing, Right? Just like Israel's political hope, there is something in what those people promise that that reflects a desire that isn't bad. It's not a bad thing to wish to be better off, right? That's a normal and understandable human desire. The problem is that even though that's not a bad thing, that way of thinking still elevates a worldly hope and puts it in competition with God, saying that righteousness and wealth and riches go hand in hand, that shapes our expectations in dangerous ways. Because we can cry out, Hosanna, save us. And what we mean is save us from not having nice cars and big houses and not save us from our sin. And then when God comes and says, blessed are the poor, those cries of Hosanna can turn for us to shouts of crucify him. See, it is fine and human to desire those worldly things, whether it's political freedom and influence or whether it's wealth and health. There's even a sense in which Christianity acknowledges that desire, right? Part of our hope, ultimately, in the new heavens and new earth is that when the world is healed, that that we will find those needs met. But the salvation Christianity offers is something deeper and more personal than that. It isn't salvation from oppression or poverty to freedom or riches. It is salvation from ourselves and into relationship with God. It's a restoration of our deepest and truest relationship with the Father. Our worldly hopes are dangerous because they are things that keep us from pursuing that kind of salvation more. They're good things in themselves, but God is the greatest thing. And almost all sin consists of taking good stuff, but then trying to make it the greatest thing instead. Because what happens when you do that is that you cease to sort of like use those things to worship God, and instead you worship those things and simply use God as a means to get them. And when God becomes a means to an end rather than the king of the universe, we've ultimately lost the salvation that he offers. So why did people kill Jesus? Part of the answer that we see is that he challenges their worldly hopes. That their ultimate hope is in things in this world and they want Jesus to serve as a means to get them those things and when he refuses, they kill him. There's another part of the answer too. Another reason I think that people turn against Jesus. We see that in the next story. So if you look at verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts And drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So picture this, right? It's the temple in Jerusalem, and there's there's constantly sacrifices being made and people kind of offering offerings because they travel from all over the world there. But because they're traveling from all over the world, like if you're going to come sacrifice a bull at the temple, right, you're probably not going to bring it from like Asia Minor on a boat with you. Instead, what you would do is you'd go and, you know, buy a bull in Jerusalem. Or if you were going to give, you know, money, it had to be kind of in the, the currency of that area. And if you were in another area with a different currency, you'd have to get it changed. And... People sensed an opportunity to make a buck off of that, right? And so they, you know, they set up places that you could do this. And they set them up in the temple courts, basically. They set up a market in order to sell animals and to exchange money. And Jesus is ticked off about this. He storms into the temple and starts flipping tables, literally, right? Flipping tables. John, when he talks about it, Jesus, he, he says that Jesus wound together ropes into a whip. And so he's like whipping these people and flipping over tables. As he declares in verse 13, it is written... 
My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So what's going on there, right? On a surface reading, you can read that text as just being a warning against religion and commerce being too closely married. And it probably is a warning against that. Um, I do think sometimes, I mean, so look, we need to always be careful about reading too many kind of contemporary, like economic questions into that text, which some people do. But there is a tendency, at the very least, that some people have to try to make a buck by slapping Jesus' name on things, um, on their products. And that does come dangerously close to being what Jesus is probably warning against here, right? Frankly, it's probably dangerously close to breaking the second commandment if you use God's name to sell junk. But that's not the main point of this story either, I don't think. See, there's something that you can miss when we hear it. Again, because we need just that one detail that the people in Jesus' day would have known and that we can miss. So the temple is in Israel, okay, is divided up into these separate courts. And so there's this inner court, and that's where Jewish men were allowed to go and nobody else. And that is where all the kind of religious rituals actually happened, right? Where the sacrifices were actually made and the prayers were actually given. But then there's two outer courts. One was for Gentiles and those who were ceremonially unclean. Um, and having that outer court was at least biblical in the sense that, you know, Scripture kind of says that you need a separate place for Gentiles who are going to come worship. But even there, it's meant to be part of the temple, right? A part of God's house, And then in Jesus' day, there's another court, actually, that isn't in the Bible anywhere, but that Herod built for women and kids, because they started keeping them out of the central temple as well, and there's no biblical basis for that, all right? But that's the layout of the temple, and we know from from other sources that talk about it that the money changers and merchants were in the two outer courts. In fact, when you read the rabbis in Jesus' day talk about it, they make very clear, like, oh, of course we wouldn't have, we wouldn't turn God's temple into a market. Ergo, of course we wouldn't allow this to happen in the inner court. But those other places where those other people come and worship, that's fine. (laughs) And so when Jesus comes in and starts flipping over the tables and says this, right, he's not saying, when he says my house should be a house of prayer, he's not saying something that they disagree with you know, in a, in a like core sense, what he's saying is that he's challenging their application of it and who they apply and don't apply it to. He's challenging their privilege. That becomes even more clear when you keep reading, right? In verse 14, we read that the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. And the blind and the lame, right? People who are physically weak and disabled and wounded. In Jesus' world, those people were looked down upon And they weren't actually allowed in the temple at all, even in the outer court. And again, that's not, nowhere in the Bible does it say that, but but that became a regulation as well. But Jesus welcomes these people into the temple where they're not allowed at all and starts to heal them. In verse 15, we read that, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The children are yelling and dancing in the temple courts and singing to Jesus. And children, again, in the ancient world, it's kind of complicated. They're seen as valuable in the sense that they're like a resource that's valuable. But in Jesus' day, they're not. In fact, in both Greek and, and Jewish sources in his day, there's debates about whether children are human beings, okay? And, and the consensus is probably not. The, the consensus is sort of like, well, they're sort of potential human beings, and they're really worthwhile because someday they'll turn into human beings, but for now, they're just annoying. Uh, Michael Green, the New Testament The New Testament scholar, he puts it like this. He says, Children in ancient society, Greco-Roman and Jewish alike, were there to be seen and not heard, had no rights, no status, did not matter until they grew up. Right? Um, And that's a little different from our world, but the best thing I can say is that, you know the term childish that we use for people, and we mean that as an insult, right? Um, We don't apply that to children in our world, but in Jesus' day, they were included in that. Does that make sense? So again... They're viewed as kind of second-class citizens. So we have the Gentiles and the unclean and women and children and the blind and the lame. All of these groups are the groups in this story that are being emphasized as being welcomed in by Jesus, right? All the groups that are not at the core of worship in his day. All the groups. And so the chief priests and the teachers of the law get angry and they come to Jesus and try to confront him, right? And of course, they know that all of the rules that they've made are probably not biblically defensible. But so they say, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. They're singing Hosanna to the son of David. And again, they're trying to trap Jesus into claiming that he's the Messiah. And Jesus, um, I love his reply. He says, yes, 
Have you ever read, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Which is really this kind of double burn, if you actually think about it. Because first, he's solving, you know, he's saying, he's claiming to be Messiah, right? He's saying, like, haven't you ever read the Bible tells that children tell the truth, right? And, you know, and what they're saying is that he's, you know, the son of David and the Messiah. So he's answering their question without it. But at the same time, he's also challenging their sense of privilege by elevating these kids to be sort of equal with or even superior to the chief priests and teachers of the law, right? He's saying, like, yeah, you know, see, they get it. All of which leads us to the other answer about why Jesus got crucified. Or part of the answer, again. Jesus was crucified because he challenges worldly privilege, too. Jesus challenges worldly privilege. He comes to those at the center of the kingdom, those that we think are the holiest and the most important, and he tells them that the outsiders and the disabled and the childish are actually closer to the kingdom than they are. We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again, because it's one of the major themes of the Bible. But we as Christians are called to die to every label and marker of privilege and thing in this world that makes us feel better than other people. We're called to die to them. And that can be hard, right? I mean, it's easy to kind of nod your head and say, yeah, you know, we need to die to those things. But actually doing it is really hard, because that can really creep into all sorts of areas of our thinking. I mean, I think about, like, like what's, we talked about this once before, but what's your mental image of a Christian, right? If I say, picture a Christian, right? Like, what pops into your head? And there's a good chance that they are good-looking and relatively well-off, right? Um, for example, even though um, Jesus himself is a homeless dude covered with the dust of the road, it's, an, I mean, frankly, like, in our world, like, it, for almost all of us, the dude is white, even though two-thirds of Christians in the world are black or Latino, right? Um, it can creep in that way. It can, it can creep in in how we act, in who we befriend, or who we seek to pursue for Jesus. It's easy for us to fall into this trap of ranking people in friendship, in evangelism, in who we have fellowship with in the church as more or less important. I mean, I hear church strategist people who kind of drive me nuts talk this way talking about figuring out who what people have the most to offer and then like really pursuing them as the church right and i see it creep into my own thinking in those more subtle ways of just like oh yeah you know the people who are easy and good looking and have it together like those are the people that i really want to spend my time with right but jesus invests constantly in his ministry in those that society views as the least and the lowliest Instead, and often we as Christians spend our time chasing the greatest and loftiest when it's the opposite of what he does. Our sense of privilege and importance can even influence the way we look at other Christians, right? Um, I mean, look, there are differences between Christians, and they matter, and we should talk about those things. We don't, not that we pretend like they don't matter, but there's this tendency often for us to kind of view ourselves as the real, like, Jesus people, and those other people, you know, we look at them kind of askance. And that's still problematic because it implies that whatever thing we figured out theologically or practically and how we act as a church or whatever, that that's the thing that makes you, you know, the real Christians and the real, like, important people in the kingdom, right? When really, if we look at a fellow believer, we should just see Jesus. I mean, that sense of privilege of trying to use things to make us feel good about ourselves, it can creep in in so many ways. And it's dangerous Because just like worldly hopes, it can also cause us to focus on things other than Jesus. If we believe that we are better or holier or more Christian because of something, and that thing, that's not Jesus, right? Then inevitably we'll start to put our trust in that thing and look to that thing as what really saves us. So Paul, in the book of Galatians, all right, this is what he argues. He's dealing with This idea that um, in the church in Galatia, that even though Jesus has come, to be a real Christian, you need to be kind of outwardly Jewish and follow these Old Testament ceremonies, right? And the point of all of that, again, was that it was like, well, this is a mark of like the really holy people, right? The really religious people. It was this mark of privilege to get circumcised and obey food laws and obey these special seasons. And Paul spends the whole book arguing against it. And in the climax of that book, in Galatians 5, he says this, starting in verse 2, he says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, which this is about the religious thing, right? But he says, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you of all. And if you start seeking these outward marks of privilege, these ways of making yourself look better than other people, 
that you'll actually lose Jesus. And the reason, because he says in verse 4, is that you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Which is to say that by chasing that thing, you're making Christianity about something other than Jesus and the grace that he offers us. And so you're actually losing Jesus and the grace that he offers And that's actually teaching you a false gospel, he says. In verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that's really what Jesus is calling us to, to look at all the ways in this world that we're tempted to rank people and judge people and order people, all the ways that we're tempted to make ourselves feel better than other people, and saying that none of those things have any value. But all that has value is faith expressing itself through love. That, in the end, is what is both so essential and so intolerable about Jesus. His insistence that the only thing that matters is himself. And his insistence that it's sin, then, to put any worldly thing next to or ahead of him. It's the message that Jesus comes to call us to, and it's the thing that the crowds ultimately found they couldn't stomach. That Jesus abides, no rival loves. While there are blessings to be found in him, both in this age and in the age to come, those blessings are not the thing that we can give our heart to. We are called to pursue Jesus as our ultimate aim, to find our true hope in his love and his presence and his glory, that he abides, no rival loves. And Jesus abides no rival labels. He comes to create a new humanity, to found a new human species that bears his name and his image. And the things that we cling to in our old humanity to make us feel superior than others, none of those things matter. That the greatest and the least in this world are all equal in Jesus Christ. He abides no rival labels. Which is why, at the end of the day, Jesus is who we all need to seek more and more each day to give ourselves to. That he is the dividing line in history. He is the creator of a new humanity. His life and cross and resurrection are the hinge on which all of creation turns. So it is he who we must all wrestle with. We must seek to die to all things that are not him if we're to make sense of his work and if we're to make sense of the coming celebrations of Good Friday and Easter that remember them. Would you guys pray with me? God and Father, I pray that you would would just teach us this reality. Father, um, I just recognize in my heart all the many ways, the jumbled and disordered loves, the things that I like to use to make myself feel good and superior, and I repent of those things and pray that you would help me to die to them. Lord, teach me and teach all of us to trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone our hope for salvation. We pray all of these things in his sweet name. Amen. Now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table where he feeds us himself, um, we do so as those trusting in his work and life and being. And so we, we mark that by reciting together the words of the Apostles' Creed, which is this way that Christians throughout from the earliest days have tried to summarize who God and Jesus are. Would you say those words with me? I believe in God the Father. Invite the elders to come forward as you prepare to come to the table. Reflect on the fact that um, as much as Christians often feel like what Jesus does in taking the bread and the wine and blessing them and saying the words over them is elevating them, 
Um, and that's certainly one way of looking at it, and true. There's another truth in which what Jesus is actually seeking to do in the Lord's, at the Lord's table is to put them in their proper place, which is to say that, um, that, that what he is trying to speak to us, right? This is, this is the most, like, basic stuff of human existence, right? You know, I mean, eating and drinking, like, you, you die if you don't do those things, right? They're the humblest and most fundamental and essential parts of worldly life. And what Jesus is seeking to tell us is that in truth, at a deeper level, it is his body and his blood that are to us those things. That, as he says, when the tempter comes to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. And as true as that is of the scriptures, that is even more true of the living word, who is Jesus Christ. And so he seeks to say that those things in this world that we trust in as fundamentally as food and drink, we are meant to recognize in our trust in them the even deeper and truer need that we have for the body and blood the grace and salvation that Jesus Christ offers us. So as we come to his table, reflect on and put your trust in those truths. As I received it, so I deliver it to you, that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for Christ's body. Our God and Father, we give you thanks that you do not sit in heaven aloof from us, but that as we stray from you, so you descend and pursue us, coming as a human being, as Jesus Christ, that you might call us from our sin to turn and trust in you. We pray that you would work in our hearts this morning to continue that work. We'll take the bread together and hold it so that we may partake together as the one body that we are in Jesus Christ.
Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after the meal, the Lord took the cup. After giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We will likewise take the cup together and partake together as we are one in Christ. Blood of Christ poured out for your sins. Take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Stand with me and sing.
It's good to worship our Lord Jesus Christ with all of you this morning. There is time for fellowship out in the, um, in the fellowship hall if you'd like to join us. If I mean, people standing around you are family even if you haven't met them yet. So if there's somebody that you don't know, you better get introduced and go now with the blessing of Jesus Christ, who by his death destroyed our deaths and by his resurrection restored our life. May you walk in the strength of those things until he comes again in glory. Amen.